Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. In the previous episode, I mentioned that abortion was going to be one of the main reasons why people support Trump, or at least are seen to support Trump. And I'm sure that's true. Now, one of the main issues facing us here is how do we as followers of Jesus approach this subject, as opposed to Christians with a dominant agenda and a worldview and a power and control dynamic. Because the way of Jesus is to try and seek to give power away. It's to try and create gentle space so that other people might flourish. I think what we can do is we need to change the way we talk about uh, this issue. I'm not under any doubts at all that evangelicals and charismatics and Christians are sincere in their desire to protect unborn life. Listen, I'm not going to get involved in that conversation at all. It's the tactics. It's the way that they do it or the glee that they approach the way Trump has done it, which is what's causing so many people consternation, observers looking from the outside in, as well as people from inside America, are are writing to me and are, are concerned. They're saying, what is going on? It feels like perhaps we've gained the world, but lost our souls. We've got our judges on the panels. We've got different governors in control, and we've changed some laws or we're doing something. But at what price? And this is worth asking. Do have a look at, there's a man named Keith Giles, who's a public theologian and communicator, and he wrote a very good blog post called The Big Red Button, which details the way that the abortion issue has been used and manipulated, especially by the Republican Party, to turn it into a partisan issue. And it was deliberately uh, contorted to become a partisan vote-winning issue. But it doesn't have to be, and it didn't have to be, And I'm asking followers of Jesus now to imagine a world in which they are known to be for a culture of life and not just pro-life. There is a difference. There is a difference between being pro-life and merely being pro-birth. There's a difference between being for a culture of life and life-giving systems and being part of a death system or a death-dealing system which might or might not include opposition to abortion. I don't mean this as a shallow way to score cheap points, but you do need to know that the Nazis were anti-abortion as well. It is possible to be a part of a death-dealing, death-worshipping society that also has some kind of sentimental or moralistic attitude towards the unborn. And this is what I wish and we need to have followers of Jesus paying more attention to this. Because now it's become the issue that if a politician says the right things about abortion to the home base of conservative evangelicals, they will then be given carte blanche to do whatever they want on any other subject. And it is also worth looking at how the the reasons why someone would choose to have an abortion are often to do with things like shaky economic status, poor employee rights, 
poor unionized workers who are unable to have the flexibility and the income that they need to survive in their work. A mobile and precarious zero hours workforce. Women who, whose husbands and boyfriends and partners are at war or gone to war. Women whose husbands and boyfriends and partners are incarcerated in prison. People whose uh, hospital and medical costs are prohibitive. They cannot afford it. These are some of the main issues why someone would opt to have an abortion. But these are all issues which um, right-wing evangelical conservatives tend to be on the side of creating the conditions which make abortion more of a viable option rather than less. And I rarely see people admit this. They seem to uh, not pay attention to the fact that, in fact, statistically abortions rise under Republican governors. They rise under governments and presidents and parties which are seen to be an attack on the labor force, which are seen to be militaristic. They are uh, the, the ones which are going to be most precarious to a health care plan or to affordable health. These are the Republican side of things, and these create the conditions for abortion. This is part of the story. And anybody who doesn't take that seriously is not actually taking the abortion seriously. They are perhaps being merely pro-birth, and they aren't actually concerned about pro-life. And of course, the same groups that are uh, shout very loudly about life before birth are then the ones that show almost zero concern, and in fact, they attack education programs, welfare programs, peace programs, environmental protection programs. They attack some of these, these programs, calling them socialism and big government and all that kind of stuff, whereas these programs are the very thing that are proven to be some of the best ways to allow and to help women to bring their children to full term and to raise them up. So it's not being anti-life to question the tactics and the strategies of the pro-life movement. And I feel like the Pope had a very useful phrase, the Roman Catholics have a very useful dichotomy, and they think of systems of death and systems of life, which I already mentioned earlier. I feel like this is something that followers of the way of Jesus would do well to start putting into their vocabulary more. Because a culture of death is a culture that leads inexorably to individualism, to lonely, inhumane ways of life, to seeing humans primarily as consumers, to seeing an identity of a person primarily in whether they have the ability to pay for things or not, that sees a culture of death, sees the solution to every problem to be a human death. And that will include abortion, but it also includes capital punishment. It includes warfare. It includes a heavily militarized police force who shoot to kill or who have a culture of death. And we're seeing that playing itself out right now on American streets, and it's, it's happening everywhere. The culture of death is alive and strong, 
and it goes hand in hand with an authoritarian law and order attitude and atmosphere. The cultures of death are the cultures which, to a man with a hammer, everything is a nail. To the one who thinks that control and dominance is the ultimate weapon, then the ultimate way to defeat or to defeat disorder or to control someone is to kill them. And killing is the, the go-to move for the culture of death. It puts profits before people. It puts industrial uh, production and waste above ecological safety and flourishing. It puts one's national interest above the interests of anyone else or any other nation. It values success and victory and money more than life. These are not difficult things to perceive as being the dominant mar markers in our modern-day society. And it's not just America. Come on. I'm only talking a lot about Americans because it's Trump that has sparked this and it's Americans that have been writing to me. But, of course, it's not just America. Our life, the life that we live in, the, uh, largely defined as the modern West, the Western life, but not only Western, is heavily industrialized, heavily materialistic, and it puts individual lives at a much lower premium than it puts the pursuing and the prolonging of systems and institutions which are going to lurch forward into time, often in which we literally sacrifice our children to in order to keep going. So if you really do care about children, if you really do care about prolonging and preserving life in all its fullness, well then you will be as upset and agitated and moved by children being put into cages because their parents were trying to escape their home country to come and have a better life. You will be exercised and alarmed by environmental collapse and degradation that's coming as a direct response of our materialistic and industrialistic and consumeristic life. You will be appalled when bombs are dropped on Syrian villages and Iraqi towns. You will care about collateral damage more than you care about having a victory party in your hometown because the troops have done their thing. And you won't cheer about them in church, like I sat in a church and heard the congregation cheer when it was announced that the U.S. had conducted successful airstrikes against its enemies. This is a time of weeping. This is a time of realizing that you are part of a country and a system that is interwoven with deep, deep evil. That it cannot survive without committing deep evil anti-life, anti-human, demonic evil. And there is no nation <laughs> that is exempt. There is no exceptionalism. This is what we do. Nations fight against nations. They rage in vain. And the way of the Jesus follower is to say, no, we refuse to instrumentalize human life. We refuse to take a human life in order to solve a problem. And that includes, I would say, abortion, and it also includes health care, and it also includes the way that we feed people, educate people, the way that we punish them, and then the way that we react as a society, as a movement, as a movement of fellow travelers, of people of peace, 
of followers of the way of Jesus, how do we react when human lives are destroyed at the expense or for the purposes of prolonging our systems? How do we respond in those ways? What excites our attention? What excites our emotions? I don't actually believe that abortion is the main controlling factor for support for Trump amongst Christians. Because abortion is a subject that does not have to be partisan. It could be cross-party. It could be one in which all followers of Jesus look at the two parties on option and they say, you know what, blue team, red team, yellow team, green team, whatever, you do not support a culture of life. You stand for death systems. We refuse to participate. We refuse to let you use our lingo, broadcast our images, rely on our support, because you do not speak for cultures of life. This is what could happen. We don't see it happening because of partisanship, because what happened to the Christian political imagination is it's withered on the vine. It's reduced to the fact that now politics is seen as voting for one group against the other group. Politics and your political engagement and involvement has been reduced to a narrow, tiny horizon in which you pretty much think that your politics is who you vote for. Josh M. writes, How do we remain apolitical without being apathetic? Can we stand up without taking sides? And then he goes on to write to me, essentially saying that if he was to vote with his conscience, this man is American, he said he'd want to vote Democrat, but he's aware of the issues of being a Democrat supporter in a culture in which he's grown up being told that Democrats are pro-abortion, anti-life, etc., etc. So he's wondering how he does this, because he doesn't think that the Republicans are holding all the keys to the kingdom. But he doesn't know what to do. Should I vote or not? Can I be apolitical? Does that mean I'm being apathetic? Okay, partisanship has co-opted and destroyed the political imagination. The fact that so many people find it almost impossible to think about their engagement with society without also thinking about a political party is a demonstration of that. Politics is the organization and shared vision and use of power. It's about what people think they have their power to do and what they're going to do with it when they get it. And it's also about how they negotiate space with other people who have different organized shared visions of power. You can be political and you are political in your families, in your boardrooms, in your school parent-teacher associations. You are political at all levels. Churches are political. Any group of humans who get together is a political group. Party politics, capital P, that's what we would call partisan politics. And it's that little aspect of politics which has taken over the word. And so now we can't really imagine politics without thinking that we have to throw our lot in with one of the other parties. But this is part of, I think, the, the way that the followers of Jesus can start to be different or to, to have to start to think differently. We need a better imagination. We need the imagination, for one thing, to know that if you don't vote or if you don't support a main party, that is not the same as being apathetic. And another phrase that I think Josh M. and all the other sincere believers of Jesus and followers of his way that have written to me 
a phrase I would like to get you to take out of your vocabulary is apolitical. You are not apolitical. It is, in fact, impossible to be apolitical because even someone who claims they are apolitical is making a very strong statement about the options that are on offer and their attitude towards them, which itself is betraying your attitude towards their vision for society and what you think about it. And in any other case, you're not apolitical if you are joined with fellow travellers and people of peace, if you take the time out of your Sunday morning to gather together, if you choose a career that doesn't lead to violence or death or greed, but you instead choose careers that lead to flourishing and help of others, if you choose to spend your money in one area and not in another, who you choose to associate with, who you choose to eat with, who you choose to sleep with, to have children with, how you choose to bury that person when they die. These are all political statements. This is not apolitical. You are engaged in the work of being a human being. You are joining with other human beings who have a shared vision for what they think they're doing on this planet. And together you have a collective power and you're doing something with your power. You might be giving it away. You might be trying to congregate it and collect it and withhold it from others. And this is where the Christian imagination for politics comes in because it's all about trying to seek to create spaces in which we give power away. Do not be like the Gentiles who lord their power over others, says Jesus. And in Philippians 2, he enacts kenosis, which is he empties himself. And it's not empties himself to become a cringing worm or a lowly dormouse, or doormat, I should say. It's he empties himself is what it means is he put a limit on his will to make space for other wills. Not my will, but yours be done. The self that Jesus empties, he doesn't empty it to become nothing. That's an erroneous translation. He empties himself insofar as he refuses to let his self fill the room. His ego doesn't flow to fill the space. He puts a limit on his will on his self to make space for other selves, which is why in Philippians 2 it then says he became like a servant. And it's not because he's some cringing, lowly person with no self-respect. It's because servants exist for the will of someone else. That's their job description. And that's what Jesus is like. And he's showing us this is what God is like. And at the end of that Philippians 2 hymn, where Jesus gives up his self in order to make space for other selves, he then is elevated to the place where all knees shall bow and every tongue will confess. The lordship of Jesus is kenosis, self-emptying. And Paul in Philippians 2 says, have this mind amongst you, be like Christ. And he's not meaning if you should find yourself to be a divine, omnipotent member of the Trinity, this is how you should act. What he's saying is, if you should find yourself to be a person of public responsibility and power, this is how we act. And this is part of having a renewed Christian political imagination to realize that what we're doing with our power is how we relate to each other and how we think that Jesus is working in this world. And so if you're part of a, a, a partisan system, which is all about domination, partisan systems are effectively about silencing the opposition and then gathering all the power to ram your agenda through no matter what. And these partisan systems are the problem. 
more than anything that they want to do or not do, it's the way they do it is the issue. That is the unchristlike way. Before we've even filled in the blanks, before we've even looked at their policy documents, if they believe in domination systems and ways of acting, they are unchristlike, antichristlike. But if we have a politics that is actively engaged in pursuing ways to find space for other people's wills to be revealed and to be flourished, if we're actively trying to find ways to submit one to another, to lay down your life for your friends, to give your resources and your money to each other so that there's no poor amongst you, you are living a canotic life, a life that is not clutching tightly to your own rights, but is seeking the rights of others more than yourself. This is the Christian political imagination. And this is not apolitical. This kind of activity will put you front and centre in the middle of the fiercest public political debates going on right now. To actually want to do this, to actually live this way, and to care about these things, is going to put you at odds with our militaristic society, with our partisan society, with our economics, with the, with the way that we treat foreigners with the way that we treat old people, the way we treat children and unborn children, a canotic politics is one that is completely political insofar as it's offering a viable and public alternative to the other ways of the world, to the other options. Stanley Harvass is a great political theologian from Texas, and he writes, he's famous for writing about the church as an alternative politics. And he's always accused, and people like me are also always accused of somehow being separatist. If we think that the partisan politics isn't really the home for the follower of Jesus, then we're accused of separating from the world. But that's not separating from the world. When you think that what we do together as a church or as a body of Christ, the way that we spend our money, the way that we use or don't use our lethal violence, the way that we hold to our rights or give them away, when you think about these options... When you think about the way that a people of peace and the followers of Jesus will treat a foreigner or an enemy in times of war, you can't tell me that that is an apolitical or non-political option, even if that person never once votes for the red team or the blue team. I will also have to quickly say that there is a, a strong and, I think, legitimate critique against someone like me, a white man, who talks about the option of not voting. Because for someone like me, I move in a world in which I have other options open to me. I can be political without being partisan, without voting. There are people in this world and in my society, my neighbours and my friends, who don't have all those options I have. And voting is one of the tools. So I'm not, I don't want you to hear me as saying, don't vote ever. What I do want you to hear is, that voting is not your God, and it is not your solution to the problems of the world, and voting is not the sum total of what it is to be political. Voting is one of the things that we do, and let's be honest, it's a very limited thing. It hardly does anything at all. Your vote doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. You should do it, I suppose, but if you choose not to do it, if for some reason you look at the options and you think that voting for one of or both or three of these options is simply impossible for your 
conscience as a follower of the way of Jesus, then publicly do so. Don't privately opt out. Make your non-participation in the voting system a public political act. Tell people that you're not voting and tell them why. Tell the political parties why you're not voting and tell them why. Otherwise, it really is wasted. Otherwise, you really are just becoming some sort of apolitical, isolated unit who is only helping the status quo continue on its merry way. So voting is an option. I can completely see times when voting is a necessary act. I think that obviously you will have times when voting is um, going to be a compromise. All parliament is a compromise. That's the whole point of the name parliament, which is the, the way the Brits and the Canadians and others talk about their government. It's a parley. The whole point is, is that you talk together without killing each other. The whole point of parliament and government is to compromise. So it's really unfair to point to some politicians and say you compromised, so we won't support you. All politics is compromise. That's what it is. Now, there's a difference between compromise and abject hypocrisy, and there is a difference between lying and compromise. There are people who just know the system, and they, they know that they're playing the system for a reason, but what they're not doing is they're not giving that system the ultimate authority and aims of a godlike entity. They're not putting all their hopes in democracy, put it that way. And I, I can sit with those people. But it's the people who uh, act as if politics is the be-all and end-all and that you just continue voting for the red team and once the red team get in power in every position, then all our problems will be solved. That is idolatrous thinking. That is making a god, not only a god out of a man-made tool, is making a god out of a man-made tool which is hardly, barely adequate for the task. You're not even investing your hopes and your dreams and your fears in something very good. It's a tool, not even the best one on offer. There are many other ways of being political, of being pro-life, of being pro-peace, of being pro-flourishing, pro creation without having to throw your lot in with a very small and angry partisan lot. This is probably as good a place as any to bring up another word which I would love to see been taken out of our vocabulary, especially Christians, followers of the way of Jesus. Please stop saying what about as your response to any time a criticism or a comment is aimed against you. Whataboutism is one of the laziest and intellectually vacuous ways to respond to anything. And it's a, a response that is born from shifting blame and refusing to pay attention to your own responsibility or your own area of influence which you have been entrusted with. A good friend of mine once said, why do you pay attention to the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own? The whataboutism type activity is only about shifting attention away from the log in our own eye. When we resort to whataboutism, we are indulging in a very primal temptation. The temptation for humans, which I guess we would use it, we could use the word nationalism or tribalism, 
or factionalism. It's the tendency for humans to group together with people who look like them and sound like them as much as possible, and then to invest in that group the ultimate authority and ultimate allegiance. And that any attempt or any perceived attack on that group is seen to fundamentally if affect our own identity. And you can brook no criticism, no chink in the armor can be shown because that will then undermine the group in which you've given your ultimate authority. So whataboutism is the instant knee-jerk response born from the exact type of attitude and forms of life which the followers of the way of Jesus are asked to give away, to lay down, to not fiercely protect, to not clutch tightly, and to see barriers between groups as opportunities for being a good neighbor, a good Samaritan. Whataboutism is closely related to another partisan tactic, which would be the a tactic of false equivalence. So inevitably, if you are a Christian and you are trying to talk to Christians whose imagination has been captured by the Republican Party, for example, if you try and mention anything against Republican tactics or aims or methods or language, you will very quickly and immediately be met with, yeah, but what about the Democrat Party? They're worse. They're just as bad. They're worse. Okay, here's a little thought experiment for you. One side is motivated by fear and greed and pride. They lie for their own ends and they discard the truth in favor of winning at all costs. They mock and they silence their opponents. They abuse and kill innocent human beings. The other side is motivated by fear and greed and pride. They lie for their own ends. They discard the truth in favor of winning at all costs. They mock and silence their opponents and they abuse and kill innocent human beings and they do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Tell me, who's worse? Of course all political parties are bad. Of course they are. We've just been talking about this. No political party deserves our love and our admiration and our ultimate allegiance. Political parties are not the solution. So this isn't some sort of appeal for all the Christians to start voting for the Democrat Party, or if you live in the UK, for all conservatives to start being Labour, or all right-wingers to start being left-wing. This isn't something as simple as that. To point out that the one side that is overwhelmingly supported by the Christian voice, to point out that that side assumes it has the allegiance and the support of the Christian base, that's the problem. Just pointing out that other sides have issues is not to solve what's actually in front of us right now. If we lived in a world in which the Democrat Party or the Labour Party or the left-wingers commanded the hearts and minds and souls and emotional attention of the people who call themselves Christians, well, then we'd have a different conversation. But we don't live in that world. We live in the world in which right-wing, conservative, militaristic, populist, nationalist, 
and openly racist leaders all around the world can rely on Christians as their base support. And you see this in Russia, Brazil, Hungary, Poland, America, Canada, Germany. We see this all over the place. Christians, get your own damn house in order and stop pointing at other people. Your name and the name of the Jesus that you say you serve is being co-opted and used by people who have aims and intentions and outcomes which are the exact opposite of anything Jesus said or did. Okay, moving on now to some other responses that people involved in this line of conversation always face. Often you'll get thrown the bone that uh, Jesus was not political. If you really believe that, then do go and look at the Bible studies that I've been doing on Mark and Acts. I'll also put some resources up. Jesus was political from top to tail, from beginning to end. He was crucified with the name King of the Jews. He was crucified on a cross, which was the torture device reserved for people seen to be enemies of Rome. He was seen as someone whose claim to kingship was credible. He had thousands of people following him at any one time, swarming over the hillsides to be with him. When he fed them, miraculously, they wanted to make him king by force. They called him Messiah, which means God's anointed one or God's king. He made claims and about himself and his authority to pronounce on matters of forgiveness, conflict resolution, violence, money, health care. Jesus was political and he was seen to be political. And his entire mission was uh, defined by his willingness, not only willingness, but actual activity engaging with Samaritans and outsiders, foreigners and the like. He transcended social bounds. He transcended ethnic bounds. He was always a political figure. That doesn't mean he was for the Jewish side or the Roman side. He wasn't part of their noisy little politics, but he was political. And that's why they had to get rid of him. They didn't know how he fit in their system. He was a challenge to them. The world had to kill Jesus. It couldn't deal with his politics. And the followers of Jesus, the ones who were part of his kingdom, which, by the way, he said, the kingdom of God is now. And the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is another way of saying it's not a place you go to when you die. For the earliest Christians, it was the place where God's reign is unopposed, the place where you can say yes to God. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is now. I'm here. I speak with the Father's voice. If you say yes to Jesus, it's like saying yes to God. The kingdom of heaven is when you say yes to me. And the following of Jesus, I said earlier in the last episode, the faith that we have in Jesus, the word is a political word to do with allegiance. You'd go less wrong less often if you substituted the word patriotism for faith when you read the Gospels. Because most of the time, it has to do with the attempt or the, the people who come running to Jesus to be seen to be with him or want to be with him. The faith is the faith not of an intellectual ascent to a series of miracles and propositions, but the emotional willingness not to be offended that this man 
is their king and that what he says is the way. And that's what a a follower of Jesus, a follower of the way of Jesus, is someone who doesn't take offense at Jesus's way. That's the one who has faith. And that is intrinsically a political job. In fact, even the word gospel is euangelion, which is a Roman military word originally, which was the kind of word you would use to announce your rightful king has broken the siege. Your true leader has arrived. That's what euangelion means. And the earliest Christians, when they sat down to write their gospels, their accounts and their memories and their theology of what it felt like to be around Jesus, the word they found was not a religious word. It was a political word. And they said, for example, Mark says, in the beginning, the euangelion of Jesus, God's king. So don't let anyone ever tell you that being a Christian or being a follower of Jesus is an apolitical or non-political activity. It's never not been political. And part of its politics is that it opposes the partisan dehumanizing nature of politics. That's one of the things that Christ followers do when they are being political. They cross party lines. They eat with the enemy. They fraternize with the untouchable. This is what they do. And this is how they live as a political being in this world, because they're showing what they what their vision is and their shared collective vision for society. And this is not an anti-country activity. The patriotism logic will tell you if you don't love your country, then you must hate it. But that's what patriotism says. That's not what the earliest Christians say. They'll submit to their countries and to their government, and I will talk about Romans 13 later. They will abide with their countries and their nations, but they treat them with a sort of benign indifference. They refuse to get excited. They refuse to put all their emotional energy and identity into the things of man and the things of their nation. And instead they treat it with almost not contempt and not hatred, but indifference. It's not that important. I'll leave you with a classic example, which is the one where the people come to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were two groups who hated each other, but they'd united together because they hated Jesus more. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, should we pay this tax? And the tax was not a municipal tax to keep the streets clean and the lights burning. The tax was a temple tax imposed by the Romans on the Jews for the right to worship in their own temple. It was an ethnic insult. It was a racial slur. And so when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, should we pay this tax? They're not asking, should we be citizens and do what the government tells us? They're asking him, what do you think about accepting this racial insult? What do you think about Jewish patriotism? And one of the first things Jesus says is, pay the tax. Because it's got Caesar's head on it. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. It's only money. Take the insult. Who cares? We've got bigger things to worry about. We're going to give to God what has God's image. Which, by the way, is every human being. Jesus' response there was not a patriotic confirmation. 
of Roman might and empire, it was a deeply anti-patriotic, anti-national ethnic purity type move. But it was not non-political. In fact, he was putting Caesar in his place and he was putting himself above that of which the Romans and the Jews both were staring at in slack-jawed wonder, unable to look away. And Jesus treats those things with almost indifference. Pay the tax, it's only money. We've got bigger things to worry about. I'll see you again for the next episode. But until then, be at peace. friends we have been listening to me <laughs> bloviate about the world his wife and everyone in between i am genuinely interested in hearing some of your feedback what's on your hearts and minds what was going on when you listened to me talk about abortion and voting and power and all that stuff and i'm also aware that as we talk your 4th of july weekend has just passed it's it's still in the rearview mirror so i would also be interested to hear as we've been talking about patriotism and nationalism what your weekends were like <laughs> what do you say guys do you want to launch into that pile of worms <laughs> uh you know for, for me it was a strange year uh, you know we're kind of stuck at home uh, we we live right close, to, right next to a, a shopping center, and there's a hotel. And for some reason, even with COVID stuff going on, there was all these people congregating in this hotel parking lot and doing right. party games and stuff. Yeah. And so it, this was a weird year for us as far as July Fourth goes. It was just we didn't go to any fireworks. There were hardly there were some communities doing fireworks, but it was just people setting out fireworks for hours. Uh, right. <laughs> that's a, I mean, some people were like, just, I mean, all, all of us young uh, parents, we're just kind of like, thank you so much for the 12 hours of endless fireworks. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't even have a dog that goes off and bees crazy, but uh, you know, anyway, so it was a strange year. Um, the, you know, the, I felt very conflicted about July 4th c- okay. celebrations the past several years. And I've just kind of gone along uh, with it. Um, there's this one, th- one celebration in a public park that we would go to where they even had a, 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 a like a local orchestra band come and play mm. and they would play the theme song for all of the branches of the military. And, you know, they would have veterans stand mm-hmm. up and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in Sean, I want to hear more of your perspective as a, as a veteran, uh, and, and what your perspective on that is, is, you know, as the years have gone on, I've just felt more and more conflicted. So I just kind of go along. It's, it's almost like a kid holiday now because the kids still enjoy fireworks. Um, but I'm, I'm, I kind of, I'm not even present anymore. I'm just like, yep. Uh, just give me a hot dog, please. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> you're neutral yeah. about it. It doesn't, it doesn't make your little heart go pitter patter either way for I am zero. I am on zero. Right. I've kind of checked out because I'm actually maybe kind of against what, what we're celebrating and I'm just right. alone for the civilness, the civil holiday ness of right. it. Right. Yeah. You maybe feel like a early first century Christian during a pagan festival, <laughs> wondering <laughs> whether you should eat the meat sacrificed to the idols. Yeah, that's who I am. Yep. <laughs> Which by the way, Paul did say it's okay to do that. So maybe exactly. it's okay to eat a hot dog on 4th of July, even if you think it's 
idolatry. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes, that's why, that's why my conscience is clear. You know, exactly. God gave hot dogs to us, so. <laughs> what about you, Sean? I mean, you you probably, have you ever have you ever had anybody play a, a theme song to you while you stood up and everybody clapped oh. for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, many, many times and every Memorial Day, which is always kind of ironic that people, even the holidays themselves, especially around the military, and there's three primary holidays in the U.S. So there's Armed Forces Day, which is actually uh, for those that are currently active duty. There's Veterans Day for those that served and are no longer mm-hmm. active. And then Memorial Day is for those that we've lost. Mm-hmm. So Memorial Day is always one of those that kind of goes, happy Memorial Day. And there, it's kind of like, it's not, it's not yeah. really, or they'll thank me for my service on Memorial Day. And it's like, right. they're, they're like I hope you have a happy Memorial Day. And it's, and I'm like, that's not at all what right. the holiday is about. And actually, Part of my journey, I learned there was a guy that died on our, when we do in the Navy, we do Westpacs on the West Coast, six month cruise, basically just like, it's like a patrol for the military. Um, 1994, we lost a guy off of one of our ships, the USS Tripoli, uh, a gentleman whose name I, I later learned, I didn't learn up until it was four or five years ago on Memorial Day, it kind of hit me. I didn't really re- appreciate or understand the differences. Right. And then when I was going through this, I remembered this guy dying and I remember he died and I kept thinking he's never going to go home. And I was 19. The only thing I wanted to do is get off that float. Only thing I wanted to do is get home. I mean, mm-hmm. all due respect, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like every day you walk out with your chest pumped and right. you're just so happy to be there. Some people felt that way. I, that wasn't how I served and, and how most that were serving. We just want to get home. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the significance of him never going home. Uh, his name was Cor- Corporal Stephen Mosier, by the way. I just want to say his name uh, for that part of it. But all that to say, there's a little bit of a, of a, there's an emotional connection there. And I found out that he graduated high school and I did and mm-hmm. did the same job, job I did. And then only he did it in the Marine Corps. He joined early, all this other stuff. And he, in picture, he even looks like me and he was so married. It's easy to put yourself in his shoes. Oh, I, I feel myself now every Memorial Day um, just asking, you know, God, why, why did he die? And he just wow. tripped. He tripped over a cord and fell off the side of a ship and hit his head and we never found his body. Okay. And so, I mean, it's what it is. It's for me to this day, I mean, every Memorial Day now for me is a very somber thing. And I even sent a text to this group of Nick guys I served with that were on the ship in 94. And all of them said, yeah, like they remember buddy, mine was up in helicopters looking for him. And, uh, and we never, and they're like, we never knew his name. Thanks yeah. for, you know, so, so there's a lot of progress to be made around this. Cause I know, I know this is a microcosm, a little bit of what you're talking about July 4th, but you know, I think about all the emotions I had during those times and how I grew up, you know, that you talk about the pitter patter and, and, uh, you know, July 4th, above all the days, and I did flag and the pictures of Washington crossing the Delaware and this in the imaging, the deification, as Brian Zahn talks about it, of, of our forefathers and the way that we have deified our forefathers uh, so well in terms of our history. We, that's our go to. Yeah. yeah, it's part of our political language. And then now there's this fervor when I can remember for years um, that July 4th was kind of a, you know, it was a celebrated, but it was. Eh, you know, it's kind of like whatever. I mean, there wasn't right. a lot of pride in the military for, for a period of years. The first Gulf War kind of changed that. And then the last, since 9-11, it's been nothing but a, you know, just an endless parade of, of, of ramping up You've yeah, seen flags it. and stuff. And yeah. so in yeah. coming to the realization of what kind of what Chris's point of kind of what that means and how that and how we then become idealistic around these these values that we come emboldened with. Mm-hmm. You, know, you talked about some of them like abortion in this episode and and some of these other kind of high value targets that we look at that give us a moral superiority and help us feel like we're the heroes in the situation. And that's kind of where I, I kind of pulled from all this and all this is going on in my head 
It has been for the last couple of years while these holidays like July 4th come along. Mm-hmm. And yet, despite all the fervor, the thing that I see is the most important thing to do during these holidays is people want you to spend money. You know, this holiday has been very different, as, as Chris mentioned, that, you know, with the COVID and the, and the seclusion that we're and the social distancing that we're supposed to do that I'm, I'm in Houston and you keep seeing the reports. Uh, we're not doing a great job of it. I know that. I know people personally that, that haven't. Uh, you know, and you could argue on some level that I haven't, but all that to say, it just seemed like for many years, it's become a, it's become an excuse to, to buy something, you know, it's like mattress right. sales or Memorial day and holidays and this holiday and yeah. that holiday. Yeah. And even the holidays themselves aren't even looked at for what they're supposed to be like labor day yeah. and, yeah. and whatnot. And so the birth of the country, and especially now with the awareness around some of these major issues we've had in our country around social issues and social justice that we have never addressed. I'm like, I'm like, Chris, the best I can do amongst all the people that I love who are not quite as in tune with that is just kind of this benevolence and kind of, or not benevolence, but this, I don't know, is that the right word? Benign indifference. <laughs> Benign, yes, that's what I was thinking of. Right? Benign indifference. I'm, yeah. I'm worried now I'm talking too much, but uh, it's this benign indifference. And I'm just kind of like, I don't want to become the martyr who goes up to the little kid who's got a sparkler and starts yeah, trying right. to rip it out of his hand. And, yeah, you become like the guy that says, uh, Santa Claus, oh, uh, cover yeah. your children's ears, by the way. Santa Claus doesn't exist, you know, and then, right. yeah. That's not going to help anybody. So, yeah. <laughs> I feel something similar when I, so here in the UK, we have, um, you know, we have the, the Remembrance Sunday, which is a, a memory of the various soldiers that lost. And and it's always a, a really, I, I essentially just, uh, empty i just avoid it you know i just don't attend because not because i like hate the troops because i don't (laughs) but it's because it's such a morally complex situation that for me to be true to what i know to be true is probably best if i just not there i mean the the worst thing i ever the worst thing i ever saw in any church ever was in the uk for all me talking about americans all the time it's only because of you guys um you know, the worst thing I ever saw in any church was I was in the UK on Remembrance Sunday and, and they made us all stand and sing, um, I vow to thee, my country, which if you want to go look up the lyrics to that, you know, it, it, it literally says, you know, I have no higher love. I will give you my all, my everything. I will ask no questions. And I just like, this is why I avoid churches on. And unfortunately I had to preach that Sunday. (laughs) I was preaching. So I couldn't have just quietly left because what can you do? Like you're just kind of shell shocked. It's like to use a military metaphor. I mean, it's, you, you are just stunned. You're like, what have I just had to sit through? Like, I don't know. That's idolatry. What else is that except idolatry? I vow to thee, my country. No, I give you my, my highest love. I ask no questions. And I just thought, okay, there's honoring brave people who have been involved in something that is terrible through no fault of their own. And then there's singing worship songs to it. It, These two things are not the same. And we should be able to talk about what has got us in the state where we have to send men and women to die and kill for us. We should be able to have a conversation about that, that honors those people and still recognizes this wasn't a good thing, you know? And, and, and that I just so rarely see that in these moments of celebration where it just becomes celebration of the thing itself rather than of the people mm-hmm. who, who got swept up in it. So 
Yeah, I don't know, Sean. I mean, I, I've spoken to enough soldiers to know that I know a lot of soldiers who do not like war. <laughs> no, most of them. I mean, you'd have to be a fool, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you'd have to. I mean, I think I try to think it was Patton in the movie. If it something to the effect of that, you know, he loved it, but he knows that it's a terrible thing into itself. And, and what I was thinking about, not to push back or suggest that you should have said something, but I do remember the first crack that I had because I was aware of this. Hmm. I think it was this subliminal, like subconscious as you really start, like you said, you really start to like read in that intimate dive into what we're being asked to be as Christians and to mm-hmm. follow the way. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to like unravel this, this uh, narrative in my head. There was a gentleman, his name's Kirk Cowell. And I went to church with him and he was just a, a member of the congregation and they asked him to preach one Sunday. And he specifically put a little comment and it was strictly about worshiping our country more than our faith. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of this idea of just kind of inner, just kind of, I mean, he threw it out there and I thought it was like this barb, but it was like this, just enough to put that crack. Yeah, right. And it kind of helped create that wedge and stay there. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm not the only one who's over here struggling with this. Yeah. He opened the door and then that door just kept going. So it depends on the timing and the, in the scenario and it wasn't his job. And he wasn't being paid. There wasn't a, a risk there. We do have to find a language to, to say this kind of stuff. I get, I've been getting a lot of emails because of this podcast and uh, there is a common theme, <laughs> and the, the common theme amongst enemies and friends, so I, I'm not going to make fun of anybody. So I meant amongst the people who have less goodwill towards me, they go, yeah, what about World War II? What about the Nazis? And they think this is their knockdown argument, as if anybody who's, any Christian who's talked about nonviolence hasn't thought about the Nazis before. I always find that a very interesting assumption. Um, but then... The other side, uh, who are people of goodwill, they're saying, but what about the Nazis? What about World War II? Like, what, what do we do with that? And so I do want to probably signal here in this moment that that's coming. We're going to talk about this stuff. Like, this isn't, we're not ignoring it. Uh, and what about Romans 13 and the, the sword that you know, the, the government bears? We're going to talk about this. It's, it's coming up, you know, and I'm deliberately like... I've got a method to my madness. I'm trying to come up with, you know, there's this kind of emotional thing. Like we're talking about the 4th of July and we're talking about even the abortion issue. It's like some of these things are the emotional reaction gets in the way of, of talking about it or thinking Christianly about it. And so I partly want to just directly address that. Like, why do we want to kill our enemies? Not whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing. It's why when I encounter these uh, people who are upset at me, they want to kill their enemies. They are celebrating it. Um, you know, why do we want to bring harm to our enemies? Why do we, why do we, it's not, it's not like you get a whole lot of evangelical Americans going, woe is us on the 4th of July. Like, woe is us that we got to such a point that we had to take up arms against our government in direct opposition to Romans 13 and to Jesus, you know, woe is us that that's what we had to choose to do. That's not what you see, right? You don't see Christians emotionally thinking that they really did something bad that day on the 4th of July. You see hot dogs and flags and and little children. So that's the kind of emotional thing I want to get at. And I'm almost sort of clearing the rubble on purpose in in these, you know, first three or four episodes of like kind of getting the emotional reactions out of the way in order to get us ready to start thinking 
all right, what did it feel like? We know what it feels like now to talk about war and violence. What did it feel like in Jesus's day when he started talking about these things? And what does it feel like for the earliest followers of Jesus? One of the, in, one of the emails I got that wasn't very friendly, he said, I listened to the first episode and you didn't talk at all about the Bible and you didn't talk about Romans 13. <laughs> I just was like, you listened to 30 minutes of a series. Uh, the fact that I didn't say everything all at once doesn't mean I don't say it. It means that I'm, we're starting a journey here, right? What do you think, Chris? Well, uh, just what you were saying about how these holidays are, are celebrated. Um, my mom has a, a good friend, and every year uh, <clears throat> in one of our the, the main museum in our town, in our city of Peoria, she puts up a, a, a tree, and, and on, it's a it's a, it's a memorial tree for veterans who you know have um, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and re- really the main thrust of of her tree is that most of those soldiers are going through horribly heavy stuff. Right. And Sean, I bet you know a lot about this. And, you know, and of course we always, we bring up the PTSD and they're, and they're suffering through so much. And I think what I hear you saying, Stephen, is, is okay, we can, we can honor those people, but really it's a question of, well, it's always framed this way. Look at what they had to do for our country, because there's never a question that what they were doing was good. It's it's like your song. It's like your hymn to your your country. Yeah. Well, we have that. We have a similar hymn too. I mean, in a sense, it's the it's the pledge of allegiance. Um, and there's other hymns, maybe too. Uh, maybe my country, tis of thee. Uh, there's never a question of whether or not what they did was absolutely worth it. No, it's always a hundred percent absolutely worth it. And yeah. if you question, then you're kind of the, the traitor language starts bringing yeah. up, or the hatred yeah. of America language is start to brought up. Yeah. But when I see uh, so many soldiers, and I have personal friends who have who have really struggled with it over the years. I, I wish people could make the turn and go, yeah, what did they have to do that? Right. Was this something that our nation had to do for our, and send our people over there to do that? I mean, there's a Stanley Hauervas, who's a Texan theologian. Sean, do you know Stanley Hauervas at all? I know, yeah, of course, yeah. We, we yeah. got to get him on the. We got to get him on the podcast. That would be fun. Stanley Hauerfass, he wrote a brilliant book called War. I'm looking at it right now on my shelf, War and the American Difference. And he makes, it's just a series of essays about this kind of stuff. And, and he's not anti-soldier. He's not anti-human. He's saying, look, the system. And it, one of his interesting things is he talked about Memorial Day. He said, you know, the justification for so many wars around the world, not just America, is why are we fighting this war now? Well, we got to fight this war now because otherwise the people who fought, fought the last war, their memory will be in vain. Well, why did they fight the last war? Well, they fought that last war because otherwise the people who fought the previous war, their memory will be in vain. And he says, it's just people, it's just memory all the way down. It's people fighting wars in order to preserve the memory of the previous war. Right. <laughs> That's what kind of a lot of that comes down to. Like we're kind of a society that memorializes uh, things breaking down. And, and then we fight wars in order to kind of it's almost like a distraction from having to face the truth that, that, you know, what that didn't work very well. It wasn't a very good idea. But rather than actually do anything about changing it, we just memorialize it and keep going. But, and he sees he sees. So he's not he's not pointing out that the soldiers are morally evil people. He's saying, like, we are. Sold, the war is bad for soldiers. We're sending our troops to, to die for things and to kill for things that are 
fragments. Yeah, sorry, Sean. Go on. I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with just how to how to how to start it because this is a little bit of a powder keg in a way. Uh, I think to your point about why we fight wars, and one of the things that we see, one of the issues we have in re- relation to looking back over something we've done, mm. is that we've been we've been running a 70 year high off of World War II mm. that has been basically the validation of our our use of uh, socioeconomic and political power and military power throughout the world mm-hmm. to be the world's hero, to be the good guy. We were told, and I can remember, you know, unequivocally being told that back to the Nazi comment, right? That's the famous one. That's yeah. the one that we're, you know, we, we defeated national socialism. Hitler's no longer in power. And we did that. And so that we were in, and one of the things I couldn't, I, as I've gone back as a, from a historical standpoint and learned more about Korea and learn more about Vietnam, what we did there and why, and uh, Ken Burns has an excellent series, I think. Mm. Uh, it's extremely intense, 10-part 10, 10 series about the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and this is some of the things you learn. And these are things that are not, I know he's been accused of, it seems like, any, to your point, anytime somebody comes up with something that's a criticism, it's some sort of liberal, liberal, social, you know, traitoristic type of, of mindset. But it's, when you have audio recordings of, of Robert McNamara and President Johnson mm-hmm. having conversations, and it's their words, it's kind of like President Trump when he tweets, I try to give him every benefit of the doubt. And then he, then he says it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, I can't help. Like now you're saying it. This isn't yeah. the media yeah. that's misrepresenting what you're saying. Yeah. Isn't interested. Like um, this is coming from your mouth. Yeah. I'm hearing. Yeah. So when you see declassified documents and you find out that, that just something is merely as fundamental and as, irrit- I don't know how to put it. Pride was really, was one of the main reasons we stayed in Vietnam. Right. So, right. And we lost 58,000 casualties in Vietnam, like, you know, in terms of dead. And that doesn't count the mental of those who were uh, the damage of those who served uh, and what it did for them long term. Because I've had conversations. I had a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine uh, who was in the Marine Corps and had to listen to a radio um, uh, broadcast of two guys dying in a fiery death mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in an armored personnel carrier. And he couldn't turn the radio off. And he told me that just because I tend to get around people and they'll tell me these and, and these stories are awful that you hear, but there's also an amazing camaraderie and there's a lifetime of, of friendships. And there's and it's part of the reason there's such an issue around kind of calling this to the carpet is because now you're saying that that sacrifice wasn't worth it. Right. Okay. You're saying that, that somehow, right. You're devaluing that. And that person like Corporal Mosier, his family, he's been dead 27 years. They haven't had him in their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his, you know, the woman he was married to has been a widow since then. He's been gone and he is gone for 27 years. And so if you're going to pay that price, the idea of saying that something was in vain is is not is no small statement. And I think that's a big. It's, and there's just a disconnect. It's cognitive dissonance in a superficial way, but it's, I think it's even more than that. Because then it's asking us to actually look at ourselves and go, well, but we're supposed to be the good guys. Oh, and then it's like then you show countless examples of of even the troops just you know me lie in Vietnam, Abu Ghraib. You know those are just the ones we know about. And I'm telling you that. If you think that everybody that's served in the military is just this Boy Scout who's just doing what he has to do to make things better, of course, but not. He's, he's always the good guy and always doing the right thing and always protecting the children and always up against a bad guy who's trying to use the children against him and it's all this other nonsense. How do we? And then, and I think it bleeds over into something like the topic from this episode into abortion and some of these other issues. They're, they become these heroic things of which they these altars of which we throw ourselves upon, yeah, right, to make it seem like we're the heroes of the world. And when that's and I remember as a kid, Tina Turner, that was his last thing. I just remember when I was a kid, all these narratives in my head about being the hero, every movie, every subject, every story, 
history, everything, hero, hero, hero. And I can remember Tina Turner singing that song about we don't need another hero. And I kept thinking, well, how does that work? That's not, there's just, that doesn't make any sense to me. And now today, now I understand, right? I, I feel like I understand we don't, we don't need a hero. We don't need heroes. That's going to sound really odd. I know it's just something. Right. Like, no, 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 we really, really don't. Yeah. We really, really don't. Yeah. I mean, I will say like, we're going to keep talking about the violence and stuff. Obviously this isn't going to be the last time that it comes up. So yeah, I think, you know, you look at the world we have now, <laughs> the actual world we have now, and you just kind of ask the people who really love the myth of righteous violence or the idea that violence, lethal violence will solve our problems. And you ask them, you go, all right, how's it working out for you? <laughs> how's it going? You know, countries, you, you, you eternally are waging war against other countries. How's that working out for you? Have you solved violence yet? Has it, has it led to any problem? World War II, did that solve? Yeah, I, went, I, I saw a tweet or I saw a friend on Facebook. He was like, I'm so glad that the Allies defeated Nazism. And I was like, they didn't defeat Nazism. There's, a, there's pictures in today's newspaper of people marching, wearing uh, swastikas and Confederate flags in a pro-Trump rally. <laughs> like that wasn't liberal media. That was somebody wearing, wearing a swastika. You know, we didn't defeat it. It's here still, you know, and that that war in that World War II did something. And I'm I'm not saying it was the worst thing that ever happened in the world, but it didn't defeat Nazism. It didn't stop war. It didn't end violence. It didn't solve the problem. And you're not some kind of crazy utopian dreamer to point that out. And in fact, to be honest, it's all the other side. The crazy utopian dreamers are the ones who say, the solution to all of our problems is just more military, more guns, more bombs. That's never been the solution, right, to these problems. It's been maybe at best a short-term response to a long-term complicated problem. I would also point out that on any side, in any war, in the history of humanity, if you didn't have patriotism, you wouldn't have had war. <laughs> all, all sides either march into somebody else's territory because of patriotism or they defend their territory because of patriotism. So all humans who have ever been killed as a result of war have been killed because of patriotism. And I would defy anybody to, to deny that fact. <laughs> so when I say, ah, oh, maybe patriotism itself, rather than this war, or that war, or this conflict or that conflict, what if we looked at patriotism itself and considered whether it was really as great as we think it is, which is partly what I'm trying to do here in this series, <laughs> which is why I linked, see, I didn't even really want to, you know, the abortion is not a topic that I think we need. Put it this way, guys, the three of us, we're not going to solve that issue right now. I don't think the world needs our opinion on abortion. I don't think that's what we bring to the table. But for me, I don't look at that issue as just an issue about the value of unborn life. I look at it as an issue of also trying to control the narrative of a country. So I'm, I'm trying to see it as bigger than just the, the emotive button issue of, of children being killed. And I want it to be also about uh, it was seen and used as a way for people who wanted to dominate the narrative of their country to take it back. It was deliberately used as a way to do that. And that's the issue I want to look at, you know, because because there's a nationalist 
patriotic narrative here of like, we need to take our country back. And I think that's the idea. And I'm not, I'm not even really wanting to get into a big debate about, about the pros and cons of abortion. I, I'm just interested in how that idea or that topic was being used very overtly and deliberately in a way it was drafted in as a way to get evangelical Christians to take back their country. What do you think, Chris? This is, this is your, this is your world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I had lots of thoughts about what you were saying about uh, abortion and, and just, just the different ramifications of it. And again, like there's a discomfort in what you just said just now of, of sitting with, of knowing that my morals, like they've, they've tugged on my inner virtues. Uh, they've manipulated me or anybody or my, my, my family into voting a certain way based on that. I yeah. mean, that's a, I, I, that just takes, I have to kind of sit with that. There's a, there's a man who, who uh, just wrote a book uh, called costly grace. I think his name is uh shank is his name. And, and it's, and it's just about the role that he played in that, in, in okay. the, the, the rise of the religious right in the eighties mm-hmm. and all of that. And I had a friend that just recommended that book to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think where I go with that is, and, and that in and of itself isn't good enough. And, and, I'm, and I'm called again to question, yeah, so what, what am I supposed to do about something uh, like abortion? And um, I had this idea. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine, a um, really good close friend, and we were talking about Black Lives Matter and, and what, it, what it all does and where it's all headed and what, what should we do. And I came up with this. You know, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of uh, Christian, private Christian schools. You know, I've, I've been a school headmaster for many years. I, I like education in general. I think it's really, really important. And um, there's, there is some arguing that like in America that, okay, if, if we really care, if we really care about black lives, then let's make all of the public school funds just even because I'm, I'm, I kid you not. Uh, there's a, there's a town North of my city and I've, I've been a substitute teacher there and the facilities are just out of this world. Mm-hmm. Like, so the tax revenues and the tax dollars that have gone into that, those buildings are amazing. Okay. And then you go more towards the, the the underprivileged sections, which in the history of my city, they were redlined, meaning, uh, you know, back, you know, decades ago, this, yeah. is, this is where mostly black people were relegated to live. You know, again, yeah. what we would call yeah. systemic racism. Or manipulated laws to do with loans. Exactly. Loans. Yeah. Yeah. And so their schools are struggling. Um, and so uh, anyway, so on, on a on a public policy level, there's an argument to be made as let's just um, I'm sorry, guys, let's make this even. Let's choose to come together and say, no, everybody gets the same amount of funds now. Right. That's one thing. But then my argument from a from a Christian school perspective is. Uh, because you, you talk about what about ism and, and uh, one of the biggest what about isms uh, of Black Lives Matter. I mean, it was it was literally instantaneous. Yeah. Um, it was like one day I heard Black Lives Matter and the next day the conservative Christians were saying, yeah, but what about the, the, the abortions of black babies? That's where know, the most people die. That's one of the biggest what about. Yeah. <laughs> and and so here, here's my point. If we really cared, like, let's just talk about the church. Let's not talk about, you know, the role that government plays in it right now. And one of the biggest anti-abortion stances I think we can come up with is to establish healthy, robust schools in every single community. Yeah. yeah. And and, and yeah. that 
creates a culture that creates a long-term vision of how culture can be blessed so that people don't have to find themselves in the place of getting an abortion. Yeah. yeah I so know. That's kind of my point. Yeah. Well, this is what I'm saying is I'm pro-life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really do like life and I don't think killing a human being to solve a problem is a valid response for the follower of Jesus. And so to be pro-life, I'm just asking the people who claim they're pro-life. I'm like, okay, let's go with it. Why is it that, you know, it's anyway, I already said what I had to say and I'm not making it up. You know, I'm not the first person who said this kind of stuff, but there is a difference between being pro-birth and being pro-life. And, uh, and I'm just more interested in the life part, you know, in getting the whole life uh, working well and flourishing. Yeah, exactly. So are these school issues and, and healthcare issues and um, how, you know, war actually is a huge part of that, Sean, you know, like, you know, the destabilization that comes from prison sentences or warfare or, you know, there's a whole lot going on here and it, you're not some sort of, you know, baby hating liberal right just to use the caricature to say well what if you really want to be pro-life then what's going on here how are we going to make this a culture that is amenable to to the flourishing of all human beings right again i don't feel like i'm some sort of awful guy for saying that you know i don't (laughs) i don't understand why i'd be painted as some sort of callous secular humanist for saying that you know i'm a christian humanist because I believe in the incarnation. I think humans are good. Because God said they're good. He liked them so much he became one, you know? That's the whole point of being a Christian. So, yeah, anyway. <laughs> We're not going to get to the end of these stories and these talks. But I like your your view of an education, Chris. We're going to have to talk more about you as a professional educator. But I do think at the moment we might have to draw this one to a close. Uh, thank you for joining me, guys. Sean. I do, I do want to say real quick. I do want to say real quick. I know you sent the email from Ron, and so even if they're not, you know, friendly or whatever, you know, feedback to hear from everybody out there whether or not what we're saying is having an impact and draws out of them something, anything. Yeah. Uh, please share with us. I mean, we take all those and uh, we love listening to it. We want to hear your feedback because we feel like this is not just us sitting around yammering. We're hoping this is providing some catalyst for thought and contemplation. Yeah, do, do send in your feedback. But do remember that we are three human beings here on the other end of that email. And uh, <laughs> we're, we're doing our best to say what we can as excellently as possible. So, uh, so when you send your emails, do remember that. But thank you. Do keep them coming. Right, guys. Really nice to chat with you. I'm sure we'll do this again very soon. But until then, have an excellent day. See you soon. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.